from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, what Brexit means for sustainability, VW blows $15 billion out its tailpipe, the best utilities for clean power procurement, and a conversation with the head of the Audubon Society on personalizing conservation communications. It's all for the birds this week on 350. It's July 1st, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here with our senior editor, as always, Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey there. How's it to be back on the mainland? Well, it's, I'm not allowed to say aloha anymore, so I won't say <laughs> yeah, aloha. Yeah, you're cut off. Yeah, cut off. <laughs> <laughs> My allowance is well used up. Um, mahalo for that. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and uh, oh, it was great. I mean, it was such a great week last week. I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't get to stay. You stayed at least just mm-hmm. one day. Some of our staff is there all this week, and we'll be back after the Fourth of July. Yeah, so after our Verge Hawaii event for yeah. the uninitiated, yeah. tech and sustainability in the islands, all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. So uh, more more power to them for. But we're back here and watching the world uh, variously come together and fall apart. Yeah, it's so been uh, no, no break in news. Yeah, so let's talk about that in this Week in Review. So topic number one, it's got to be Brexit. Yeah, man, that was quite a shocker. While I was still in a, in a little bit of a daze in Hawaii last week, that'll wake you up. Yeah, uh, I mean, it was just... Uh, didn't see it coming, and I don't have to really re- review too much about what happened there. The question is, of course, what does it mean in general, and specifically, what does it mean for sustainable business? We had a couple pieces to those points. One was by our editor-at-large, Bob Langert, who, of course, previously oversaw sustainability at McDonald's. Um, his take was sort of looking at the perennial comparison between Europe and the U.S. on sustainable business. Obviously, you've got companies like Unilever and Nestle that are based out of Europe, often sort of lauded for their corporate sustainability efforts. Um, but Bob sort of concludes that momentum has maybe shifted. American companies are coming on strong in the past few years. And if we continue to see the sort of upheaval that we're seeing in Europe with the geopolitical instability uh, that obviously is sort of manifesting in events like the Brexit, uh, that could really sort of throw things up in the air. Yeah, well, of course, uh, Europe been way ahead of, of American companies on, on climate change and, you know, more of a focus on citizenship and, and chari- charity philanthropy kinds of things. And now that American companies, if not the government, at least the companies are starting to catch up, they're, they're closing that gap. He said uh, there's been a more of a convergence between the U.S. Uh, takes uh, and uh, the efforts of U.S. and, and uh, European companies. So that was kind of interesting, just to you know put that in perspective. Mm-hmm. We also reprinted a piece uh, from our friends at BSR. Their president and CEO, Aaron Kramer, uh, put together what I thought was an interesting take on sort of a rebuff of integration in Europe and sort of what that means for sustainability being sort of the ultimate interdisciplinary uh, profession. And 
for Aaron, he sort of put it in the context of we, we talk a lot at a high level about things like inclusive economic growth and ensuring that new clean technologies sort of create jobs at all income levels. And it seems like uh, this is sort of the, the put up or shut up moment for a lot of that. Yeah. And Aaron is always so thoughtful on these topics. Uh, and I always love to turn to him when the world is uh, turning on its axis uh, and because uh, he always has a great perspective. And, and one of the things he says here is, is that the business voice not only counts but needs a, a reboot, and I guess it has really has to do with the role of business in turning back this uh, xenophobia and suspicion that has seems to have become rampant in both Europe and, and the U.S. That's leading to uh, you know Brexit and and certain uh, presidential candidates who shall remain Trump nameless. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know the as we go, you know as we're living in an era defined by global questions of existential importance, he writes things like climate change and gender equity and access to basic needs. These require global solutions. These aren't things that you can do state by state or country by country. Uh, and so that's, I think, a, a role where business has to has to push back it or at least make itself heard. On the flip side, though, it was interesting this week back in the U.S. to see some resolution finally starting to come together on the gigantic Volkswagen diesel emissions crisis that we all heard about last year ad nauseum. Um, so the big news, in case you missed it, is that a $14.7 billion, with a B, dollar settlement has been reached for the 475,000-ish U.S. owners of Volkswagen's affected diesel cars. Um, so again, this is a company that was previously at the top of really prestigious corporate rankings like the Dow Jones Sustainability Indices, now becomes number two on the list of the costliest corporate environmental misdeeds in U.S. history. That's behind BP's $20 billion settlement for the Gulf oil spill. So uh, quite a quite a change in, in where they fall in the sustainable business landscape and uh, one that they will surely be trying to recover from. Yeah, and the cash uh, that they have to shell out uh, is is one thing, and the, the hit to reputation, and what that does to their their market, uh, certainly in the U.S. But since they had these problems in Europe as well, uh, is really going to be an open question. And and you know we've seen uh, you know BP certainly did not buy its way out of its reputational hole with even twenty billion dollars. It's still uh, you know keeping a low profile as probably it should for a while, and eventually you know it will come back as most companies do. Uh, but the, that's the real, I think, ultimate cost to to VW is going to be uh, how long before it, it's seen as it, it's it's tolerated, let alone respected. Mm -hmm. On that point, I did think it was interesting that part of the settlement was a two billion dollar commitment to clean car development. Um, specifically, the company's CEO is saying that Volkswagen will launch 30 all-electric models by 2025 as part of a plan to sell 2 to 3 million EVs per year by that date. And to put that in context, uh, there were about 11 million diesel cars impacted by the emissions rigging scandal. Um, so still clearly a disparity there. But uh, one of the things that when I was first reporting on Volkswagen, um, the sort of the as the news was breaking last fall about the existence of these devices designed to trick regulators about the diesel emissions levels in the cars. Um, the people I was talking to who were sort of communications experts were saying, you know, the smart thing for them to do would go straight to their biggest critics, the really 
um, vocal environmentalist groups and sort of do what they tell them to. <laughs> and part of the settlement, this this whole idea of committing money to clean cars, um, is straight out of the Sierra Club's press releases, sort of slamming them and saying, you shouldn't even be looking at diesel, you should be really focusing on EVs. So maybe they're listening to that part a little bit. Well, good. We'll see where that goes. The, the other story that was really interesting to me this week was this uh, report that Barbara Grady uh, wrote about uh, from our good friends at both Ceres and, and Clean Edge. Uh, Clean Edge uh, is a company that I actually co-founded but haven't been involved with for a few years, which ranked uh, utilities in the U.S. by how conducive they are and uh, to uh, deploying green power. And this is relevant, of course, to companies that have data centers and have uh, other large uh, electricity-intensive operations that want to site uh, facilities in the places that have a high percentage of uh, of renewables, um, certainly like Apple and others that are starting to use their muscle to uh, to pick and choose where they site based, and at least in part, on, on how friendly it is for uh, renewables development. The report found four utilities that seem to be quite a bit ahead of the pack. Um, so they serve a total of nine states and generated more than 20% of their electricity from renewables as of year-end 2014. And those companies were Sempra Energy, PG&E, Edison International, and Excel Energy. So obviously the first couple on there coming from California, sort of the stereotypically hippie state. Um, but it looks like there is starting to be some diversity in terms of geography. And surely this sort of ranking, of course, is hopefully going to bring out the competitive nature others not wanting to be seen as laggards. Yeah, but it also brings up sort of the absurdities of some of these things because uh, in Florida, Florida power and life, that's light, that's Florida, the sunshine state, uh, has almost no renewable power, at least FPNL has almost no, no <laughs> renewable power in its energy portfolio, according to the report. Uh, I mean, that's just, you know, so sad that uh, that, you, that utility has not managed to really make that a part of uh, of that uh, incredible sunshine and uh, access to solar that they have there. And there were some others like uh, American Electric Power, which has uh, a number of uh, utilities in 11 states, uh, including a lot of coal countries, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, uh, which generated less than 2% of its energy from renewables. And so uh, lots of room for improvement here. For more on the clean energy calculus going on at utilities across the country, here's Frank Prager, the Vice President of Policy and Federal Affairs at Xcel Energy. We serve Minnesota, uh, a little bit of Wisconsin, and then the Dakotas, and we serve Colorado, uh, New Mexico, and the Texas Panhandle. It's Wind Alley, so there's tremendous wind resources, and that's something we do take advantage of. Our customers like it, and we like serving our customers, and our policymakers promote it in our state, um, and they do that through things like renewable portfolio standards and, and the like. And our primary driver is that we believe that renewable energy can provide our customers with the energy service they want, which is, as always, got to be reliable and it's got to be low cost, but do it in a way that um, continues to increase the amount of clean energy that we deliver and reduce our overall CO2 emissions. Renewable energy is a big piece of our overall clean energy strategy, and 23% of our energy is provided from renewable energy. So the upshot there for anyone picking a new facilities location, pay close attention to the clean energy rules in that area. But now let's switch gears and talk conservation.
So we have a little feature that we do around here called Big Green, which is an ode to sort of the big environmental powerhouses you hear about in the NGO world. So Sierra Club, Greenpeace, all of those. And our managing editor, Elsa Wenzel, this week checked in on an organization that I frankly wanted to know more about, haven't heard a ton about sort of what they're doing of late, and that is the Autobahn Society. So Elsa... Uh, I think about birds, sort of, old line environmentalism. Why was now a good time to check in and what did you learn? The Audubon Society is definitely about birds, but it's about a lot more than that. And right now it's doing everything right in social media and marketing to demonstrate that it is a window, but the birds are a window into what's happening in, in climate um, around the world and that birds are something that people care about personally. So that motivates them in turn, to care more about environmental conditions. Um, but right now, the Audubon Society has maps, apps, a good buzz on social media, a really engaging website, and a pretty funny blog. It's got great headlines. It uses crowdsourcing and citizen science, too. So in just one weekend, I guess it was 163,000 volunteers recorded on their smartphones the sightings of more than 5,000 bird species. That amounts to like half of the known bird species in the world. Um, Audubon says its digital platforms now reach almost a million people, which is a crazy climb from just 35,000 a couple of years ago. That's staggering growth, especially from a brand that's 109 years old. And that's the kind of growth that would make any corporate communicator salivate. Yeah, so, really. Um, a lot of the credit for this goes to David Yarnold, who is the CEO and president who joined, joined the Audubon Society in 2010. He had a long career in journalism at the Pulitzer-winning San Jose Mercury News. And he also did a stint um, as the president of the Environmental Defense Fund. And you'll notice he uses a lot of kind of Silicon Valley metaphors when he's talking about the growth of the Audubon Society and how they kind of brought together a huge network of distributed network of various chapters that weren't very well organized and had a kind of um, not a cohesive um, shared vision when he joined. So they had 22 state offices, almost 500 chapters, no strategic plan when he came on board, but he did see this as an opportunity, um, even a strength. So here he explains what happened when he started and what his challenge was. Audubon had become homogeneous, all-purpose environmental organization that didn't believe that birds were an adequate window onto nature and ecosystems. When in fact, given Audubon's brand, it's a perfect <laughs> window onto nature and ecosystems. I think it was largely a failure of imagination and a lack of appreciation for what technology could do. Audubon had this amazing distributed network that had been viewed as a burden and a nuisance because Audubon's structure is a pre-internet structure of a series of almost freestanding state offices and chapters. And there was no glue to bind them all together. And so that pre-internet structure was built at a time when it really truly was hard to create aligned action among all those state offices and all those chapters. But really in an internet rich era, a distributed network was a gift. And, and that's one of the reasons why I came to Audubon, as I said, holy cow, 
if if somebody were to say to me, um, okay, go build a network of all these state offices and all these chapters and 41 nature centers more than any other conservation organization has, somebody would say, well, no, that's just way too expensive, when in fact that was Audubon's <laughs> installed base. Mm-hmm. That was our installed base. All we had to do, like as if this was easy, all we had to do was to fire up that base with a shared vision. And fortunately, um, we were able to find that. In, in search of that vision, I spent my first month on the road. Um, I went down the Mississippi, up the Atlantic, down the Pacific, to Mexico, to, and and I just I just listened to people tell me the story about Audubon, and and they told me the story about the four super highways in the sky that that go up and down uh, the U.S. the Pacific, Central Mississippi, and Atlantic flyways they're called. And they're like super highways in the sky, and underneath these super highways, there are rest stops and homes for migratory and non-migratory birds. And and there are 2,500 places um, that we call important bird areas, um, and and they are America's um, network of biodiversity. And our job is to protect the tipping point. And so. I I learned that story and I synthesized that story. I did what any reporter would do. And I told that story to people and I tried it out and people kept saying, yeah, that's right. And and then, or they said, that's generally right. Um, and then when we went to do a strategic plan in 2010, instead of starting with a whiteboard, we started with a hypothesis. And the hypothesis was around the flyways of the Americas. And so we adopted the strategic plan with, um, a set of conservation priorities. And what happened that was magical was that everybody in Audubon, whether they were a chapter in Lexington or Wenatchee or San Diego or Tallahassee um, or a state office or a nature center, everybody saw themselves in birds in that strategic plan. They knew that their you know, that their ruby-throated hummingbirds were connected to South America. They knew that, you know, their their shorebirds migrated from the Arctic down to Chile. And, and, and so people, first of all, people have a tremendous sense of ownership and connection and emotional connection to birds. And so the flyways were a way for, that flyways vision was a way for people to connect with something larger than themselves. And I think that's a deep human yearning. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that it also talks to the way people who love birds think about birds. Birds mm-hmm. don't know that, you know, there's a boundary on Long Island Sound between Connecticut and New York. Um, <laughs> and, and yet Audubon was shaping its work based on state boundaries. And so by following science and by following the data, we were able to begin to overcome some of the silos that had grown up over a period of decades, um, understandably uh, grown up over a period of a couple of decades when there was no core shared vision. So the flyways not only worked in terms of establishing conservation priorities, they worked in terms of cre- helping to create 
um, culture change at Audubon. It's interesting to think about how even though Audubon, like you said, a century-old brand, even longer than that, um, is now sort of very much jumping into this wheelhouse of social media and reaching out to younger people. Um, what else did you learn about that? Yeah, its success in communications and, and using technology um, has really been a hit, it seems, with millennials. And um, there are big implications there for corporate communicators who are always trying to reach a younger crowd. Um, the main point that came across to me, and this makes sense from Yarnold um, having been a journalist for many decades, is that it's not just about the numbers and the tools, but it's about great storytelling. It's about appealing to something that matters to individuals, something as simple as the bird out your front window, whether you're in a city or in the country. Um, and he talks a little bit about that here. We've been crowdsourcing data for 114 years. We operate the longest running largest animal census on the planet, the Christmas bird count, and millions of people have taken part in it. Um, and, and Audubon was at its formation a social network. It was created by primarily women in the Northeast and the Southeast who wanted to stop the slaughter of birds for their feathers for hats. And, and they formed chapters. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, Audubon was just, you know, Audubon was early. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, I, I think it's just in the last five or six years that we've begun to realize our potential in this modern era. I mean, we have a lot to be proud of um, over, the, over Audubon's history. Um, and figuring out how to create a new generation of Audubon supporters and partners um, is one of the things that we're working on through crowd science and social media. You know, with social media, you know, we, we didn't have 20, 30,000 people who followed our social media just a few years ago. And now, you know, we're well over a million. And most important is when you look at our metrics, people spend three times as much time on our social media sites as uh, on average. So we don't just go for quantity, we go for quality of engagement. Um, when, um, when I joined Audubon, I think we had access to something like 30,000 email addresses for our activism and, you know, for um, uh, online fundraising. And now that number is well north of 800,000 and growing fast. You know, we, we did 250,000 in online fundraising five years ago, and this year we're budgeted at 2.5 million uh, out of a $100 million budget. Um, and the, you know, right now, the, the this is just a, a question of how fast we can catch up and employ digital tools. Because the great thing is we have this marvelous window onto nature called birds, and 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 people take birds personally. You know, they have ownership, and and if you have a brand, right? If, you know, for your readers, if you have a brand, what you most want is for people to feel that they're invested in the brand, right? That that, that the brand somehow is a part of their life or, you know, it's a need that they have. Well, the, the thing about birds is that um, 
depending on, you know, where you are in the, if you're in Minnesota, you know, a looms are part of your life. Um, and when the National Audubon Society tells you that um, your grandkids may not see a loon because of climate change um, and it's time to take action so that that doesn't happen, you pay attention. It sounds like there's some pretty strong parallels uh, for what corporations are thinking about in terms of their marketing and storytelling. But are there other ways specifically that the Audubon Society is looking to work with companies? Sure, they have partnered with some companies, um, including Aveda, Esri, which does digital mapping, and even Toyota. Yarnold says he's open to more potential work with business. So here's what's next on their plate and how he sees potentially working with you. The board just approved an strategic plan, and the question that plan asks is, if Audubon lived up to its potential, how much good could we do? It's a big, bold question, the only kind worth answering not worth answering little questions anymore. There's too much work to be done. And we have five conservation priorities, um, ranging from our coastlines to climate change. And we've said plainly that in order to meet the scale of the threats and to take advantage of the opportunities to really have an impact on um, the places birds and people need, um, we have to work in an aligned, we get the opportunity to work in an aligned way that brings all of Audubon's talents and strengths to bear from our conservation skills to our on the ground network to, you know, nearly a million activists to um, our policy experts um, to our educators. You know, we have the opportunity to act in concert and to make a significant difference in the world. And who, you know, who could ask for more? And that's the vision that our board signed on to and that is gonna animate Audubon over the next five years. And it says that we're gonna grow from doing $100 million in work a year to doing $150 million of work okay. a year. And one of the way we're, ways we're gonna get there is through corporate partnerships. I believe in entrepreneurship, I believe in the power of consumer brands to do good. <laughs> it's easy to find me. All right. Well, ending on an inspiring note. Uh, thank you very much, Managing Editor Elsa Wenzel, for joining us. Thank you. I, I wish I knew a bird call. I can't. <laughs> I could whistle a little bit. <laughs> By the way, this is what David Yarnold's favorite bird sounds like. It's the roseate spoonbill, a very interesting, very pink very unusual sounding bird. So as we wound down Verge Hawaii last week, I think one of the very interesting conversations of the week took place between a couple of folks very focused on sort of the bleeding edge of innovation in the realm of clean technology, and that's Hank Rogers of the Blue Planet Foundation and John Picard, who, Joel, I know you know well. Sure, yeah. This was a session that I, I hosted, moderated. It was a closing session, and we wanted to, it was called the uh, Postcards from the Future. Uh, wanted to look a little bit further ahead and, 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 and where the world is going and how to think about it. And these are two people, uh, John and Hank, who are, uh, I introduced them as, as builders, basically. They've built uh, literally uh, homes in the case of John Picard and lots of buildings and really a pioneer 
in green building dating back to uh, the early 90s um, or even the 1980s. And building companies, in the case of uh, of, of Hank Rogers, he uh, built uh, a fortune. Actually, they both have, but Hank in particular, uh, by being the uh, uh, licensor of Tetris, the video game, and uh, uh, licensed that uh, game and, and trademark and was able to build uh, quite a nice fortune around that. And both of them are, are I would consider, visionaries uh, in their in their own ways, uh, looking at uh, where the world is going and thinking two or three or five steps ahead of, of everybody else. And so we talked about, you know, what's going on? What, what's the future bring? How do we think about it? And you know, can we get to, uh, in the case of Hawaii's mandate to get to 100% renewable energy by 2045, could we get there earlier than 2045? And arguably, we could get there in half that time by 2030 or so. And so really looking at, at some of those visions. And, um, you know, they talked a lot about storage. Uh, they're both uh, very big on energy storage. Uh, John Picard has a uh, involvement with a uh, Spanish company that makes graphene batteries that's uh, potentially breakthrough. Uh, I understand you can recharge your iPhone in 30 seconds to, from from nothing to full and things like that. So first up, here's Hank Rogers talking about storage, and then we'll hear from John Picard talking about storage and materials and some related topics. If there are no big waves, nobody's surfing. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I look at this time of big waves as being an opportunity. It's a huge opportunity. I mean, the world has been flat for a long time where we, where we really can't surf, we really can't express our, you know, move the change. Yeah. But, but right now we're at the, at the moment of change. Uh, wind, I, I've heard somebody is selling wind into the grid in Texas for two cents per kilowatt hour. That's cheaper than fossil fuel. What, that, what does that mean? At, you know, it, it is within, year, within a year, or maybe already even here, that fossil fuel is just yeah. too expensive to use. Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing turning point. And that's a giant wave that's coming at us. And we've got to ride that wave and make sure that, that that we're successful. We don't fall off the board on the way down, as you say. Well, I think storage is the big, is the big deal. And it's got to be energy storage, because wind and solar is down at, at two cents per kilowatt hour. And the reason it isn't everywhere is because wind and solar are intermittent. Right. And what intermittency says is that you have to take that energy, you have to store it for, like solar, you have to store it so that you can use it at night. Wind, you have to store it from when it's not windy. You need that battery. And then the other thing is, you know, I, the reason Miko uh, said no more grid tie for solar is because it's got, they've got frequency regulation problems. Again, this is a storage issue. If you store that energy instead of just feeding it into the grid, then they can take it when they need it and, freak, and, and regulate that frequency. I, I'm just going to compliment the fact that for those of you who don't know, the kind of storage vehicles that we're about to see in any day they truly unlock the value of solar and wind, and that's what's had to happen. And it balances the grid. So, but it's, it's, it's gotta happen, you know, in a, in, in a fraction of the time that it's happening right now. So, so if I had to place a bet on, just to answer that question, the era of graphene is what, personally, of all the, all the work I've done, all the mistakes I've made, all the risks that I've taken, 
all the technologies, whether it was electrochromic glass or integrated wireless controls, all the best building technologies I could find in the valley, and I looked at thousands and I can only hold on to 10 and say that together they, they make a difference, they'll change the world. And, and the together part but is not But they were never, yeah. never priced to where I could walk into any room where anybody had budgets and return on investment situations and launch my missiles. I couldn't, I came out like with a little deal, not the deal that I needed. Well, now, the graphene does two things. It makes things more powerful, better, it closes the gaps, it's the kind of power density at a cost that the batteries, the, it's, it's a third of the cost, it's a third of the weight. And so for the first time, I have an engine to get me out of the, the, the gravity of this market and, and I'm ahead because I'm at a third of the cost. And so that's one, but graphene's gonna go on and on in water, and there are solar panels in the dish that'll be here in six months, eight months. They're in the dish now, and they're reading at like 30 to 35% efficiency, and that's it, that's it, we're there. A lot to unpack there in terms of potential takeaways for one, storage, storage, and more storage, very important, <laughs> uh, but also sort of the, the broader landscape, everything from advanced materials to all sorts of other clean technologies that we'll continue watching closely. And, you know, that's really the promise of Verge and, and, and of Verge Hawaii is that we, we have a lot of the technologies that we need many more right on the horizon. And it's just simply a matter of, of deploying them and getting them to scale. Switching gears from all the news that's been breaking this week, we have a couple of quick notes on free events coming up. On July 12th, we'll be hosting a free webcast on smart actions to accelerate urban energy efficiency, so tune in all of you smart city wonks. And then on July 19th, a week later, we'll be looking at a next generation solar strategy for commercial operations for all of you energy fans out there. You can learn more about those and all of our events by going to greenbiz.com and clicking on the events tab at the top of the page. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you'll find links to organizations, stories, and events that we've mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com 350. Thank you to our podcast director, Surreal Milconian. Send us your feedback, your ideas, and your comments to 350 at greenbiz.com. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. For all of our friends in the United States, I have a great Independence Day weekend. And from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, have a great day.